namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang Tamang Sanghang Namasami. In these uh, last uh, days, we mentioned how uh, loving kindness, uh, we've been reciting uh, loving kindness teachings a lot in the pujas, uh, how loving kindness. Uh, ripens in upeka in serenity or equanimity upeka also how uh, metta particularly particularly in its quality of acceptance is a, a basis for insight uh, and uh, in that same respect uh, the in the metta sutta itself the karaniya metta sutta um, the last verse the last four lines indicate how metta ripens as non-grasping so uh, we've recited uh, uh, english quite often in the pali uh, this evening so those last four lines uh, many of you will probably have noticed either now or in the past how the metta sutta changes gear there's a kind of shift in that uh, that last uh, passage where the, the main part of the, the sutta, the discourse, is about uh, loving kindness and spreading that kindness over the entire world, even as, even as a mother protects with her, her life, her child, her only child, and so on. Um, but the last four lines, there's a, uh, there's a change, uh, as in a, a number of the Buddha's teachings, then there's a kind of, um, uh, say, uh, uh, an opening up to a different... A dimension or a different quality uh, with the most refined part of the teaching so those last four lines uh, are by not holding to fixed views the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision being freed from all sense desire is not born again into this world so that um, uh, uh, probably you, you've noticed this, but there's a, a, ch a change of tone, and it's all about not grasping. Uh, and uh, one of the ways that I like to consider this is that in that last verse, the Buddha is speaking about the four kinds of upadana, the four kinds of grasping that he, he lists in other places. And these are... Uh, they come in uh, mentioned in, in different orders in, in this sutta it starts off with ditti so the first uh, in this respect is dit upadana grasping at views and opinions and so that um, the and well the just to, to list the four you have dit upadana grasping views and opinions uh, silabat upadana grasping at conventions uh, practices and rituals uh, conventional uh, say behaviors uh, then kame suvinaya getang kamupadana grasping at sense pleasure uh, and then the uh, the, uh, the last one um, uh, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision and so on is representing atavad upadana the grasping out at self uh, the atavada now taravada is the way of the the elders atavada is the way of the self so Atavadu Padana is the, the fourth of these kind of graspings. So you have Titupadana, Silabatu Padana, Kamu Padana, and Atavadu Padana. So uh, in reading that last verse, it seems to be, oh, the Buddha is talking about how loving kindness in its fulfillment is uh, sort of takes the, the the most sort of profound and complete kind of loving kindness is to let go of these different dimensions of grasping so uh, uh, in in this list you have ditincho um, anupagamma by not holding to fixed views uh, so that this is something that is uh, say very much a part of human life and 
we don't have to look very far outside the family, the workplace, the political arena, the sports field, <laughs> even monasteries. <laughs> Opinions about Dhamma practice, what's the right practice, what's the wrong practice, who's the good teacher, who's a bad teacher, which political party is the best party, which is the worst, um, which of your family members are respectful, are respectable, and which ones are not respectable. <laughs> we form opinions, ditti, uh, di uh, opinions about the way life works, opinions about each other, opinions about politics, sport, uh, livelihood. Uh, I could make a long, long list. and Fill in the gaps yourself. <laughs> yeah. So attaching to uh, opinions, views and opinions, this is something that it's the kind of downside of having a lot of intelligence or a high degree of education, because uh, when you spend a lot of time in school, university, and uh, you develop uh, uh, dialectical skills, arguing very successfully, you can make an argument for anything. And uh, and this kind of school I went to, we actually had a debating society, and it was to learn your skills at arguing and you'd be you'd be given a title you didn't even have any opinion about it but you say okay um the the theme for this uh for this debate is um it would have been better if napoleon had won the battle of waterloo instead of the duke of wellington uh, okay you you uh, you defend it and you oppose it and then you'd have to on the spot make arguments uh, and have a debate so it's like developing debating skills and uh, and then if you won the debate it was because your argument was watertight not because you, you were correct <laughs> or, but you could make a point you could prove it and this is the kind of thing that uh, many british politicians have been through <laughs> learning at their, their schools and universities and uh, along the way uh, i'm sure other countries as well so uh, when you have a high degree of education and you have a quick mind, then uh, you don't think that you have opinions. You think you know the facts. I speak from personal experience. And so uh, grow, uh, growing up, I would frequently find myself getting into discussions slash arguments with people. And um, and then it would be quite common to say, uh, you know, this is this is a fact. This is the truth. And, you, and if you think differently, you're you're wrong. Um, and so that uh, that's the kind of conditioning that we have, that we have this strange belief that if we think something, we assume it's true. And if other people think differently, they might be good people, but they're wrong. <laughs> and often we take that as a basis. I'm right, you're wrong. Um, if you think differently, if you agree with me, then you're a wise person. Very smart. This guy's really clever. He agrees with everything I say. It's pretty conceited, <laughs> if you think about it. But um, so uh, I didn't really have a perspective on this at all uh, until I I first went to Wat Pa Narachat. And uh, as I mentioned, and probably many of you know, I had uh, no background in Buddhism uh, before. Uh, entering Wat Pananachat, I'd been along to one weekend of teachings by a Tibetan Lama in London when I was a student. Uh, a friend of mine at the college had, uh, that, I, that we were attending had was enthusiastic about Tibetan Buddhism, and he said, oh, this great Lama is coming to London, you've got to come along. So I went along with my friend and attended these teachings, but <laughs> went uh, straight over my head and uh, didn't really arouse any faith at all, didn't make me go to a bookshop and find any Buddhist books and and didn't rouse any interest in Buddhism at all. So I, I technically I had had contact with Buddhism before uh, walking into Wat Bhaya Chat, but that was it really, just that one contact with a, uh, a Tibetan Lama in London when I was a hairy student. So um, when I arrived at Wat Chat, it was only about six months after I'd finished university, so still in that kind of intellectual uh, arena in my thinking and so i would naturally get into discussions with the other monks and novices uh, the pakaos and i uh, couldn't talk with the lay people because they only spoke isan so uh talking with the other westerners living in, in the monastery frequently getting into discussions um and uh and i began to notice 
they kept using this phrase, well, that's just views and opinions. And I would say, that's not an opinion, it's a fact. And they say, well, it's your opinion that that's a fact. <laughs> it's, but it is just an opinion. And I, I kept hearing this over and over again. And I'd never really heard that kind of phrase used in that way, like just views and opinions, because I was uh, more familiar with the idea of, of like you, the, uh, the, if you think something, it's true. And uh, this was a, a bit annoying how I kept coming up against this. It's just views and opinions in a, in a, a kind of dismissive way, like uh, where I felt I was arguing my points very well and proving that I was right and that these weren't opinions, these were facts. Uh, but then I began to notice after I'd been there for three or four weeks, six weeks or so, that because um, yeah, this kept coming up in conversation and I began to see how hang on a minute, uh, what I see as being true now is different from what I thought was true six weeks ago. So if I'm right now, I must have been wrong then. Oh, so if I think it, it's not necessarily absolutely true. If you can follow the logic <laughs> that uh, my uh, <clears throat> my perspective is is changing. It's, come, it's uh, in a state of, of change. And it began to dawn on me that Oh, I think I know what they're talking about, that uh, I have the impression that this is true, that this is a fact. But uh, actually, this is just an idea or a, a piece of information that I interpret in a certain way. I like this idea. I feel this is true. But that is necessarily something that's, that's uh, in a state of change. It's not completely reliable. It's also kind of interesting the, the word fact, this is to, to do with English language, going to English language, <laughs> the, the word fact comes from the Latin word facere, which means to construct, like a factory is where you make things, wrong arm. So a fact is a constructed item. It's, from, it's something that's put together, like sankara, it's sankata, it's formed. So uh, a fact... The word fact doesn't mean an absolute reality. <laughs> it means something that's been put together. So, oh, this is an interesting uh, fact. <laughs> so, uh, clinging to views and opinions, this is a very, um, say, significant uh, source of conflict in the family, in the workplace, in society, in the world that sense of I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, and the more that the mind takes uh, the opinions and, and views that arise in the mind as somehow uh, absolute truths, absolute uh, realities, then necessarily we're going to be in conflict with, with other people, that we, we won't respect their point of view, or we'll think, um, well, they're a nice person, but they're just wrong. So it, it feeds... A quality of conceit and separation and division and is the cause for conflict and taking up weapons and, and fighting with each other, either verbally or, or physically, uh, getting into arguments. So it doesn't mean to say that we don't have perspectives or, or valuable things to say, <laughs> but uh, when we there's a ditty, a view, an opinion, if we remember that that ditty is necessarily something that is formed it's sankata it's conditioned it's uh it, it seems true and, and real and valuable from this perspective but how could that be the same for for everyone just like if, if i hold my hand up like this and i say i am pointing to the left from where i'm sitting my finger is pointing to the left from where you're sitting is no 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 ajahn it's pointing to the right no how could you be so stupid it's pointing left. I can see it. It's right here in front of me. But and they say, no, Ajahn, I can see it too. It's this, you know, you're pointing to the right because literally of our different points of view, the, the different place we're seeing things from. So we're both correct, but we come up with a, a completely opposite answer. So that's a, a clue when we're trying to work out our differences, uh, our conflicts with people in the family, people in the workplace, people in society. Uh, people, other people in the monastery, you know, or in the the meditation center, that uh, 
we are, as I say, uh, greatly benefited by recognizing that um, our opinions, any kind of thought, is a convenient fiction. It's an approximation. It's a, a way of of speaking of referring to our our experience. And the more that we can do this, the more we can recognize that, well, in in this mind, in this moment, you know, this is the way that it seems, that this it seems to be true and valuable and real, but uh, everyone else is going to be seeing things differently. Um, we were talking about the color blindness the other day and how, I'd say, have conversations with, uh, with Ajahn Karunadamo about red and green. And he said, but actually, but it really is, you know, this really is green and that really is red. And he would give you this look like, hmm? <laughs> because those words have no no meaning for him he's never experienced a contrast he doesn't know what those colors are from other people's perspectives but you when we might from our conceited point of view say no but but it really is red and it really is green those are the real colors it's just he can't see them um so an example that came to mind is that some insects and birds can see more ultraviolet than humans can and uh, so that you might see a flower and it might look as though the petal of that flower is just a, uh, an even yellow color if you if you're a, a, a certain kinds of insect that's not just yellow there's a whole extra pattern of, of of violet on there that we humans can't see but the insects or the birds can see that the the little kind of landing strip for the here the pollen is you know, the nectar is down this way so we humans can't see that but the insects can so you might say yeah but but i'm seeing the real flower it's just yellow because i i'm i'm me i'm i'm seeing the real thing because this is what i see it's like well no the uh, why should our version of reality be the defining one so this takes a, quite a lot of humility uh and that when we are letting go of views and opinions, humility, that sense of um, not being proud or inflated or conceited, that's extremely valuable. We, we need to be uh, humble. Because sometimes, uh, many of you have probably found yourself in a situation, you're in a discussion slash argument, <laughs> and you, you get to the point where you realize, oh, she's, she's right and I'm wrong. But you don't want to back down because you're you don't want to lose the the debate you don't want to lose the argument you know the other person is correct but you you, you stay with it because and you keep making your point you keep arguing because i want to be right because it's damaging to the ego to say actually what you're saying makes perfect sense and i'm an idiot yeah you you've got it right and i i've got it wrong so um i would say that if we are cultivating wisdom and uh, letting go of clinging to views and opinions, then that humility of recognizing, oh, actually, you're right. <laughs> I was, uh, I was, I wasn't seeing the picture clearly. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be corrected by you. So that takes a lot of letting go of ego. Uh, but I would recommend if we want to uh, find peace and harmony in our lives, that's uh, important. Uh, quality to to develop so all, all of these different kinds of clinging you could spend you know a whole evening dhamma talk on but i'll i'll go through them bit by bit so the next one uh, uh so in, in this last verse uh so um silava um uh so the uh silapata paramasa uh, clinging to views and uh, uh, about religious rituals clinging to rites and rituals practices um so uh that is one of the obstacles to enlightenment it's the um the the third of the samyojana the obstacles to uh, enlightenment so the first one is um sakaya ditti self-view the second one is vichikicha skeptical doubt and the third one is silapata paramasa so the silapata paramasa literally means the wrong grasping of virtue sila meaning virtue it also means the wrong grasping of practices like uh, bowing chanting um 
wearing robes, shaving your head, bathing in the river Ganges, being baptized as a Christian, uh, being born as a Jew or a Muslim, these kind of uh, religious structures that are part of the human world. But uh, that, uh, uh, that is a fairly narrow area. And uh, Lumpur Cha would, would always emphasize that uh, attaching to, to conventions is broader than just religious conventions about how you should bow, how you should chant, the way you should wear your robes, and, and so on and so forth. Or, but he would say uh, that this Sila Pata Paramasa, um, uh, um, that Sila Bhat Upadana, clinging to, to conventions, it's the, also the conventions about what is polite in society. What is the 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 right uh, the the right way to eat your food? Um, what is the uh, the appropriate clothing to to wear? Um, what is money? Uh, what is the correct side of the road to drive on? These he would point out. These are all conventions. These are samuti sacha that we as human beings create a convention. Say in Thailand, you follow the British method. You drive on the left, yeah, and so that uh, in uh, when you, in Britain, we drive on the left, you, you cross over to France, Germany, and on the continent, you drive on the right. So the convention is different in different countries. Uh, when I was growing up, both my parents, um, they were uh, the kind of not what they call nominal Church of England Christian Christianity was the family religion. <laughs> my father would never, ever go to church. My mother virtually never. But uh, the main religion of the family was table manners. That was the main sila, was like proper table manners. And um, that uh, how you hold a knife and fork and um, uh, the, the order in which you use the knives and forks and all these kind of things. I, I'm not kidding. So I, I, if I was, I would tell you. But so that the, I, the idea of, uh, of, Say picking up your taking your fork in your right hand and then and then uh, uh, using your fork in your right hand to, to lift up the the peas on your plate in the in the scoop of the fork and then putting it in your mouth absolutely unthinkable absolutely unthinkable even though the peas will roll off the back of your fork the fork is always in the left hand the knife is always on the right hand. And if you have peas in your food, then all of the peas have to go onto the back of the fork before they go in your mouth. That's the way you eat. Knife in the right hand, fork in the left hand. And the, the kind of uh, practice of cutting your food up with your knife, then putting the knife down on the plate, and then taking the fork with your right hand, that's the sort of thing Americans do. Is what we were told as little children. Like, don't do that. It's absolutely appalling. Uh, when you spread butter on your toast, you always have the 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 edge of the, the blade of the knife towards you, but you move it away. Away from you. In Thailand, you have the same practice. Never cut towards you, but uh, you always have the blade towards you. And don't, whatever you do, try to to spread the spread the the, uh, the 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 butter or the jam with the uh, in the in the other direction. So this is the kind of sila butter baramasa of our family table, and uh, e even though again my my father never went to church on a Sunday, Sunday lunch was the kind of prime ritual of the week. And so, as a kind of re rebellious teenager, I would sometimes show up to our Sunday lunch in, still in my pajamas or, or my hair kind of all over the place. And, and they have these little uh, family um, uh, discussions, heated family discussions um, uh, about uh, what was correct and not correct to be wearing at Sunday lunch. So well, why is it okay for Saturday but not okay for Sunday? Ridiculous. But that was a convention. So um, not to, I'm not trying to make fun of my dad. I'm just saying this is a... These were important things in the family sila, in the family conventions. Probably all of you are thinking, oh, yeah, right. Well, you know, my, my mom says, you know, she's really fussy about this. You should wear the dress like that. You shouldn't wear it like this, you know. And that 
the attachment to conventions is a, again a source of great conflict how things should be done and they shouldn't be done bowing correctly bowing bowing incorrectly um the uh the the mind takes the conventions that we have and turns them into absolute goods this is what you should do and that's right and if if you don't do it this way that's wrong that's bad that's inappropriate that's what the americans do or the french or you know the the uh uh, the the northern ties do it this way you know in bangkok we do it like this you know this, that's a kind of isan thing so anyway the uh the kind of pride and conceit and division easily comes as you can tell from attaching to uh, uh conventions so lumpo cha would talk a lot about this and uh, particularly the strength of customs and when he came to the west uh, for the first time yeah, he was really fascinated. He's a very uh, creative and uh, reflective person. And uh, he was fascinated by the, the differences of conventions. He'd never seen anyone shake hands before, except in some old movies. When he was a little lad growing up in Bangor, they would have uh, um, Western movies dubbed in kind of a more lum style by Isan speakers because they they couldn't, they would kind of guess what the plot was and they'd have people doing live commentary making the voices for the characters on the screen but so he'd seen in a few movies people shaking hands but he didn't really didn't really know what that was so when he went to england for the first time in 1977 then the Sumato was was explaining to him that when people greet each other it was always the right hand two right hands and you sh and you shake like that so oh, it's always the right hand okay so so and then men shake hands with women oh yes 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 and they shake hands with women shake hands with women yes mostly yeah. so it's completely new to him but he, he wanted to learn what the conventions were well shouldn't really shake hands with a woman so what can we do instead can we make anjali like this yeah i think you're a buddhist monk you'll get away with that so it was completely new territory whereas growing up in the west you know the, the shaking hands is, is completely ordinary he was um uh, kind of uh, uh, also impressed by the different um, body language people had and that uh, say in Thailand the head is very sacred so you'd never touch anyone on the head um, there, there wasn't like a, a, a relative or a, a kind of a, a little child or something and uh, when he came back to to Wat Bapong, he was when one Dhamma talk he said you know in the west uh, People sit in meditation together. When the meditation's over, they might go and pat each other on the head. He said, you know, and, you know, in Thailand, we think, well, that's outrageous. You can't do this as a stranger. You don't really know that person that well. And he said, you know, if you went up to someone on the street and patted them on the head, they'd, you know, punch you in the nose. So they get really angry. But really, you know, what, you know, a head isn't that much different from a cabbage, from a galampi. You know, just tapping somebody on the head is just like tapping a cabbage. And and even just reading the words in the book, you can you can still almost hear the intake of breath. <laughs> you know, what Bapong when Lumpur Cha is saying the head is like a cabbage. <gasps> Can't say that. But yeah, that's what he thought. Hey, well, why why is it so different? You know, it's just that's their convention. It's not. Uh, it's just you know a hand tapping a, a tapping a kind of round hardish object. Head cabbage same same. You know, what's uh, what's the big difference? So he was fascinated by the what was say polite and good and proper in Thailand and and people didn't even see in in the West like uh, and and what was um, say proper and uh, appropriate in the West that, that that would be very strange to, to Thai people. So getting on the uh, on the train and people hiding behind the newspaper, you know, nobody talking, sitting on the train with the, holding up the newspaper. Oh, no one's talking to each other. <laughs> These kind of things. So uh, attachment to conventions, again, seeing where the mind says it should be done this way. This is the right way to do it. That's wrong. This is this is beautiful and appropriate. That's ugly and improper. We have the precepts, the sila, the you know the five precepts as a basic guideline. But uh, within that, it's very very helpful to have that uh, reflective attitude that says, well. Why do I call that wrong? Why do I call this beautiful? Why, you know, I, why do I call this proper and that improper? 
you know, who, who says? You know, wh why should what I'm used to be what is correct uh, and what somebody else does is incorrect? And you know, every society has all kinds of uh, of conventions that we use. Just like uh, in in the West, uh, in certainly in England, the way you tie a tie, neckties always seem very strange to me. But there's a whole kind of symbolism about your tie, and that the the kind of knot that you use, and that if you come from a certain level of society, you'd always use a certain kind of knot. If you're a high so person, you'd never use a a Windsor knot, you use a, the ordinary conventional knot. Uh, a win, what's called a Windsor knot with a double loop is kind of more kind of low class people would do that, trying to look smart. So you don't don't ever use a Windsor knot. It's it won't it won't open any doors for you. So that uh, look around in your life, in your home, in the in the workplace, in the family, see where the conventions are that you're attached to that you call uh, you, you call right and good and proper and to question that challenge that to say well why do i call this good why do i call that beautiful uh, it's just the the conventions of our, our society like say um in uh in the the um um uh, forest monastery what ban what pabantat uh, mahabur's monastery uh they they never use a spoon using a spoon the monks uh, uh, never ever use a spoon to eat their food with it's always to eat with your hand the only thing you're allowed to use a spoon for is ice cream apparently <laughs> ice cream a spoon for ice cream otherwise spoons are completely forbidden but at wapapong which is an equally strict strict monastery spoons are totally ordinary so you have to oh, is this a spoon place or a non-spoon place what's what's the convention you know or that, you know, if you are a, a Bantat monk and you see somebody, a Wapapong monk, just picking up a spoon to eat his food. <sighs> yeah, how awful, how terrible. Yeah. And that uh, the, um, uh, or the Wapapong monk sort of looking at the Bantat monks like, they don't even crochet their bowl covers. Their bowl covers are just made of cloth. What kind of forest monks are these? They can't even crochet. Yeah, no good. We crochet our bowl covers. We do. We are the Bodbapong. We are crochet artists. So, uh, my the the yarn that I have the the shoulder bag that was crocheted by Lumpur Sumato. he's a really good crochet artist. So, so it's like okay, but it's just a convention. What makes crochet better than than sewn cloth? It's just. The the Silabatabara masters say, no, well, we're we're good. We crochet our bowl covers, not like that lot. So uh, you know, translate that into your own lives in the workplace, in the office, the hospital, the family conventions. And when we we recognize, oh, this is just a human agreement, there isn't really anything there. That's where we're letting go of that Silabatabara Masa, that that baptism by uh, water on your forehead doesn't make you a you know, by convention it makes you a christian for the rest of your life uh, in actuality it just gives you a wet forehead as a baby you know, that's all or bathing in the ganges by the hindu convention that might wash away your bad karma actually is i would say personally it's just a dip in the ganges <laughs> just uh, bathing in the gun in, in the ganga that's all that the mind adds on these values and meanings and that that letting go of uh, convention doesn't mean that we don't use conventions we still you know, dress our uh, put our robes on if i had my my g1 over my right shoulder instead of the left one the other monks said oh venerable chandasara actually he's got his robe on the wrong shoulder how do you even do that what's he doing he's crazy he's lost he's lost the plot he's completely mad he's put his robe over the wrong shoulder but you know left shoulder right shoulder big deal you know we just say this is what we do in buddhist tradition robes over the left shoulder not just over the right shoulder that's what the kind of things that that other lot do the hindus or the bonpos you know we do robes on the left shoulder that's right that's correct so that it's just a piece of cloth it's just a human body what makes the rightness or the wrongness it's just human agreements so the mind that can really see this is just an agreed model that's all 
It can't be more than that. Then our life gets a lot more spacious. There's a lot more uh, ease and freedom. Um, when uh, one of the the uh, good examples of this, so um, uh, I'm probably many of the Thai people know on arms round, particularly in this this kind of season, the hot uh, hot, uh, hot weather. When you're when the monks are walking back from the village, when uh, uh, you uh, as you're about you've left the village and you're uh, just about to enter the monastery, then uh, in some monasteries it's quite okay to hitch your your robe up onto your shoulder and let some air kind of circulate around by your skin because you're really hot and sweaty. And so uh, this was a. Uh, um, uh, an issue at uh, Wat Ba Pong, you know, should it be allowable for monks to hitch their robes up and let a bit of air circulate, or should you have your robes fully over both shoulders all the way back into the monastery till you get back into the Rong Chan, the, the eating hall? So one of uh, Lumpur Cha's senior monk disciples was absolutely fixed on, no, you should have your robes, uh, you should only sloppy and, and shameless monks, the Alachi monks would hitch their robe up over their shoulder yeah only shameless sloppy bad monks would hitch their robe up after they left the village good monks always have their robes on all the way into the hall so lumpocha knew this and this monk came to visit wabapong one time during the hot season and they happened to go on the arms round together to bangor village and then as they leave the village and are walking down the pathway back to the Wapapong gate, Lumpur Cha deliberately hitched his robe up over his shoulder and kind of playfully didn't, didn't acknowledge that he knew this was a, was a sore point for his brother monk. Just casually chatting and, and kind of forgot, seemingly, that uh, quite consciously forgot that there was a this monk will get really upset by that, just to kind of give him a teaching. So here is your beloved Ajahn, and he's doing the one thing that you really know monks, good monks shouldn't do. So Lumpur Chah is like, say, I'm your teacher. I've got my robe hitched up. What are you going to do with your mind? <laughs> so that was a, a, a direct lesson in attachment to, to conventions. So then the, the third one here, we have um, Kamupadana, Kama as in sense pleasure, not Kama, K-A-M-M, but Kama, K-long-A-M, Kama, uh, sense pleasure. So attachment to sense pleasure is where we uh, call something that is uh, visually attractive or uh, ta uh, ple uh, pleasant tasting or a sound that we like. We call that uh, in, uh, we call that good, and we we want to have more of it. So they that's a fairly obvious area of attachment for for many many people because when uh, something is pleasant, then the the drift from recognizing oh this is a pleasant taste or a pleasant sound or a pleasant shape to like this is good, this is this is beautiful, this is delicious, and th therefore more of this would be better. So attachment to sense pleasure is uh, learning the difference between liking and wanting. So that we can like something and say, this is delicious. Do I really need any more? Or that's a beautiful sound. Do I have to be listening to it all the time? That's a, a very a, attractive, a beautiful color, a beautiful physical form. Do I have to be staring at it? Do I have to have that in my home? So... Uh, liking is not the same as as wanting. Uh, so that, that's where Vedana and Sanya can be very peaceful. We can taste something delicious. We can hear a lovely sound. We can see a beautiful form. We can, uh, we can have a very a delightful sensation. And, and, it, and, we, uh, and it, we, don't, we don't have to make anything of that. We don't have to say that's bad or wrong, uh, but we can, because we can know this is delicious. This is uh, this is, uh, say, a beautiful, this is attractive, this is a, a, a color that uh, is really appealing, full stop. <laughs> Don't have to, therefore, I have to own it, therefore, I want more of it, therefore, I should have this around. So, uh, one very um, significant uh, dialogue that took place between the young Ajahn Sumato and, and Lumpur Cha was uh, yeah, I don't know how many of you have been to Wat Bapong or went there in the 60s or 70s, 
Uh, I lived there in 1979 um, for a period of time. But, uh, you know, forest monasteries are supposed to be very plain and simple environment. Wat Bapong uh, had this kind of bleakness. It was very simple, very plain, but like really plain, really simple. And so the, uh, it's a very undecorated life there. So it's quite, quite a, a harsh environment. And uh, the local, uh, other local monks would say, you know, uh, three, uh, three months at Wat Bapong is like 10 years at any other monastery. So it's kind of emotionally quite challenging. So it's very, very plain, very, very simple, very bleak and that sort of a barren environment. Quite deliberately, you know, Lumpur Cha was proud of the fact that Wat Bapong had the worst food in the world. And if it improved, he would scold the 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 uh, the cooks and say, no, no, you're making it too delicious. It must have been more nasty. So anyway, so life at Wat Bapong is very kind of plain and undecorated. And the as junior monks and novices, then you'd be very far away from the lay people. But in this time, Ajahn Sumedha was the only foreigner there. So he was a bit like a kind of white elephant. Like, wow, it's, or a white alligator. You know, whoa, have you seen the white alligator? So people would be interested that this big white monk uh, that was uh, this rumor, it's true, it's true, there's an American monk at Wat Bapong. Wow. So uh, Ajahn Chah was quite protective of uh, the young Ajahn Sumedha. But every so often, because it was also a cause of faith, the people thinking, wow, there's an American who wants to be a monk here in, in the Isan, in Ubon, in Ubon. Wow. Yeah, the, the, we're at the end of the world. This is the bottom of the, the list of development. We're the, the kind of bottom of the barrel. But this American wants to come and be a monk here at this really tough monastery. Well, no, Asajan, this is really something powerful. So Lumpucha realized that it was, could be a cause of faith and uh, encouragement for people. So once in a while, he would ask the young Tansumator to come and, and sit with him or meet people if they wanted to talk with him. So on this occasion, there was this group of, uh, of nursing students from the, the Ubon Hospital, um, student nurses. So these are all teenage girls, kind of 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. And with their 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 teachers, the matrons and and ward sisters, the kind of tough older nurses who are their teachers and trainers. But there's a whole crowd, you know, like forty or fifty uh, young so sort of teenage nursing students, uh, and uh, so they all came along with their kind of perfectly uh, sparkling uniforms, white and turquoise uniforms in Ubon they used, had in those days, and so they're all sitting very very properly. And Lumpucha is giving a Dhamma talk and answering questions, and the young Tansumato is sitting at his side. And then people had questions for, for him, then he would respond uh, a, a little bit in the, the tie that he had at that time. So at the end of that, so it was a very unusual, unusual situation for the young uh, Tansumato being so close to such a large number of women. And uh, uh, again, in the, the very sort of... Uh, uh, plain environment, the sort of bleak environment of Wapapog is quite a sort of sensory input to be so close to a lot of people of the opposite gender and uh, uh, and to be um, engaging and having conversation and so on. So at the end of that time, when the, the nurses and students and the teachers had all paid their respects and departed, Lumpur Cha, and in the Isan, the Northeast, people are very, very straightforward about body functions, birth, death, sexual desire, and so on. It's very uh, easy subjects of conversation, very kind of natural and straightforward. And so uh, Lumpur Chah turned to the young Sumato and said, so Sumato, what did that do to your mind? You know, being so close to all these uh, attractive young women uh, for a couple of hours. And then uh, the young uh, Ajahn Sumato replied, chop, damn my owl. And so Lumpur Chah thought, oh, this this lad is going to go far. <laughs> this one has got some banya. So, and he was so impressed with with uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedho's response, even as a very young monk, like he'd only been a monk for a couple of years, that for the next two or three weeks, he used that as a, a theme for Dhamma teaching, chop down my owl. So it wasn't like he was pretending that there wasn't an effect. You know, you're, it's, you're living a celibate life. There's very little, uh, any kind of, anything that's sort of interesting or stimulating at all. Suddenly, so like, there's you know, a whole crowd of 
of uh, people of the opposite gender you know, close by. So he wasn't pretending that there wasn't an effect, but uh, and that there was you know the signals of, of attraction going off. But he also recognized, well, it's just liking, chop, there my out, but I don't want. I, so for the people who don't speak Thai, chop means to like, ao means to want. So uh, he, what he said was, I like, but I don't want. And Lumpur Cha was, was extremely impressed, as I said, and I used that as a theme. So in terms of Kamupadana, attachment to sense pleasure, then this is a, a, a very helpful principle. I like, but I don't want. <laughs> it can be an aspiration, though. Yeah, I do want. I really want. But to at least hold that up and say, well, there is that possibility of liking and uh, and not not wanting, not getting caught in it. Another example that, uh, again, I, I, I have a memory of Lumpur Cha uh, using this example, but you can't find it in the Pali Canon. I think it's in the commentaries, and you certainly find it in the northern Buddhist scriptures. And it comes from a time when there was a famine, and, it, uh, they were, and the Buddha was living in a place called Viranja, uh, it's also the time that the first Parajika rule was, was laid down because of the famine as well. But um, so that they had um, very little food, and the, the only food that they had to eat was uh, a kind of coarse bran that was for horses. What had happened to the horses is not mentioned, but the, <laughs> the bran was what the monks were eating. And uh, Venerable Ananda is sitting next to the Buddha as they're having their meal one day. And uh, Ananda makes the comment, oh, Venerable Sir, it's so wonderful that uh, the, the Tathagata, even though this is very coarse and uh, bland food, this, this plain bran for, for horses, um, still the, the Tathagata eats it with great equanimity, even though it's kind of tasteless and, and, uh, and uh, hard to digest. And then the, the Buddha said to Ananda, uh, not so, Ananda, not so, as the, he frequently did to Ananda, not so, Ananda. The, the, the sense of taste in a Tathagata is extremely acute. And then he, uh, uh, and, but even though the, the Tathagata's sense of taste is, is acute, still his mind is, uh, is at ease and is equanimous with those flavors. And then he took some food out of his bowl, gave it to Ananda, and then said to Ananda, eat this and you'll, you will taste things as the, tata, uh, as the Tathagata ta uh, experiences taste. So Ananda takes this little bit of horse brand from the Buddha's arms bowl, and there's this kind of explosion of, of incredibly powerful flavors. Like, whoa, this is amazing! And said, and the Buddha then kind of smiles and says, "Yes, Ananda, indeed. This is uh, the 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 kind of arrange uh, array of flavors and textures and the deliciousness that the Tathagata experiences, even with food like this horse brand." But even so, the Tathagata is not confused, not carried away, or not uh, intoxicated by such uh, delightful flavors. So uh, I have a memory of Lumpur Cha telling that story. I, I don't know where he got it from. Uh, it's unlikely that the Mahayana scriptures had been translated into Thai, but uh, I think it's probably there in the commentaries. But uh, he would use that as an example. Like, you know, a Buddha has an extremely acute sense of taste, but even though even plain, a plain bran, uh, has its exotic and wonderful flavors, still the Tathagata is not confused or carried away or, or intoxicated by that. So then the, the last of the four is the, um, uh, uh, the um, uh, Kame Suvinaya Gating Nahi Jatu Gabaseyang Punnaretiti, not born again into this world, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Uh, so that not being born again is uh, about uh, letting go of atta, the, the self-view uh, self and the conceits of self. Um, essentially, not being so excited about your own story. Not to, to be uh, seeing that you know, your life is really any more important or real than any, anybody else's. To, uh, how could I be more important than you? Even thinking those words, something in the mind goes, but, 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 but I'm, I'm me. <laughs> this is my life, my story. Let me tell you about me. 
I think we've uh, all been there. Uh, I certainly have. Uh, you realize I've just been telling this person my whole life story. They got that look on their face like, oh, when's he going to shut up? How, how much more of this is going to be there? So, Atavadu Padana, clinging to self you, clinging to your own story, being fascinated with your own life. And say, so, well, why is my life such a big deal? It's just, it's just a life. I like to contemplate um, in, in the graveyards in England that uh, sometimes on a gravestone, you just have, you know, this is Thomas, uh, Thomas Williams, born 1721, um, passed, uh, passed away uh, 1786. That's it. Why is this the person's life less significant than me standing here in the graveyard? Just, you know, Amaro Bhikkhu, born 1956, passed away whenever. That it's just a, a stone marker, born this date, died that date. That's it. Nang Ai. Very simple, very easy. Why is this life, which is so colorful and so important and so me, really more significant or more real than that person who they lived and they breathed and they had a family and they were around in the world, but just born this day, died that day? That's it. So, just as a way of getting a perspective on our own story, our own self and, and so many of the teachings are about anatta about letting go of these various different kinds of selfing and uh, i already talked in this group about the the owning self the etang mama then the being self eso hamasmi the i am feeling uh the uh narrative self like the um the uh, um uh, the atta, that, uh, that my story, uh, my my age, my gender, my name, my occupation, all of that. Other kinds of self, the the deciding self. It really feels like there's me making a decision, me having a making a choice. The deciding self. Uh, none of these selves really exist, but we often believe they do. <laughs> they. Uh, the, the sense of me who's deciding, me who's experiencing, the the one who feels the feeling self or the experiencing self. And you could make a long, long list, but these are all different ways that this atta gets gets formed and strengthened. The uh the uh say the essence of Vipassana practice, uh, Vipassana meditation, at the right, right at its very heart, uh, is cultivating this insight into not-self. To see all these things that are taken to be who and what we are, this uh, the feeling of owning and being and choosing and uh, the story that, that we have and so on. To, it's to challenge those, to look at those, and to see that... Um, uh, even in a spiritual context, is I want to break. I want to break free of uh, of self view. I want to free my heart. I want to be enlightened. I, uh, you know, this is the best thing I can do with my life. But notice how much I and me there is even in that. I want to be free. I want to be enlightened. I want to get. I want to get rid of all my egotistical habits. Then there'll be me who's enlightened, and that'll be great. <laughs> no, it won't, because <laughs> you're still there. It's still the, the me who's uh, claiming attainment. So Lumpur Sumedha used to often say, the, I, uh, if we have the context for, our, for practice, of our, I'm an unenlightened person who's got to do something now in order to become enlightened in the future. It's wrong view. You're, you're establishing the practice on, I am a person. <laughs> the first of the 10 samyojana, the 10 fetters is, is sakayaditi that's self-view like no we're not a person <laughs> that seems to be the case but sakayaditi is letting is the attachment to the body the personality and that's the first obstacle uh, and that and in the vipassana practice and in the daily reflections the body is not self feelings are not self perceptions are not self mental formations are not self sense consciousness is not self that this is not who and what we are <laughs> So if we set that idea as the context, I am an unenlightened person who needs to do something now to become enlightened in the future, then it's like we're trying to we're trying to be an enlightened person. But the person is the prison. The person is the 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 the, the obstacle. 
And it works very well in, in English because I is like a, an, a vertical line. I, 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 I. It's like the bars of a prison. Like, so that the, the person, the person can't be liberated. The jitta can be liberated from being limited by the person. <laughs> uh, the, it, when all those eyes, when the bars fall away, then the, the jitta uh, is liberated, but the jitta is not, it's not an individual, it's not a person, it's not, it's not self. Uh, my mind tends to, to work in words. I'm a wordy kind of a person, you might have noticed. So, and it doesn't come up with mental imagery very often. Very, very rare. So, uh, Lumpur Sumato is quite different. His mind produces all kinds of colors and forms, and he's, a brill he's brilliant at visualizing things. He can write whole sentences in his mind and, and, uh, and uh, see the words kind of written up in his mind, like, let go, let go, let go. And in different colors, and he can kind of rearrange the... the so he would he would talk quite quite comfortably talk about, I really like pink so I just fill my mind with pink like kind of purpley pink but that's really uh, I like pink and he could literally just imagine a, a, like a certain shade and then adjust the shade to to what and this and then sit with that sort of pink nimitta in his mind is completely unimaginable to me I, that uh, I can think the word pink but that actually creating shapes and colors my mind can't do so it's extremely rare that my mind would come up with any kind of visual image. But uh, many years ago, uh, my 10th pansa, 10th reigns as a monk, um, I was able to spend in a kuti, three months in a hut in the forest at Chithurst Monastery in England. We only had one kuti at that time, so we'd take it in turns to use it. So I've been by myself in this kuti for a long, long time and doing a lot of formal meditation every day. And then uh, at a certain point, uh, I've been you know, doing a lot of sitting and my mind was very, very quiet. And this visual image came up, which was you know, very surprising because usually I just see the back of my eyelids. So, um, And in this image, um, uh, it was uh, as though I was in the mouth of a cave, uh, a tum. And uh, so the, uh, the uh, outside of the cave, there was a night sky filled with stars. And so I'm, I'm inside the cave, and then there's the cave mouth, and you can see the stars and the night sky out there. And there's this feeling of attraction or longing to, to go out into the, the space of the, the great sky. And uh, so uh, the, the feeling then is I'm, I'm standing in the, the, the mouth of the cave, and as I try to go out to the, the stars in the open sky, I can feel this kind of a chain on my leg, like a, a shackle uh, around my ankle, and a chain tie, you know, tying me to the to the the wall of the the cave. So I can't uh, get out of the cave and merge with the great uh, open space of the night sky. Uh, then feeling that that uh, that chain, I can literally feel the sensation on my my leg of this kind of metal clasp. And then as the mind let go of the sense of self, that like, I want to get out of this, uh, but rather just letting go of the sense of self, then the chain disappeared and there was just the, the kind of the being, the, the mind out in the open space. Then, then as soon as there was a thought, oh, I've made it out into the space and clunk, the, the chain came back on my ankle. Uh, once again, I'm back inside the cave. And it was like back and forth with this mental image for quite a long time. As soon as there was me uh, trying to me trying to get free, then that th there was that shackle, that kind of chain uh, holding me back. As soon as there was a letting go of self, then the chain vanished, and there was just the, the great you know, open space of the sky, and that kind of sustained itself for quite a long time, an hour uh, or a couple of hours, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So I, when that came to an end, I thought. Well, that was a message. <laughs> it's a, as long as there's a me, then me trying to be enlightened, me trying to be free, me trying to be liberated. It's the me that is the, the chain. That's the, the, the fetter. And then I thought, oh, yeah, right. Self-view. And the word fetter, F-E-T-T-E-R, literally means that kind of a, of a chain that's around, around your, your legs, your ankles. That's fettered, um, like handcuffs. Uh, being fettered is the, having a, a something sort of chaining you to 
to immobilize you. So I thought, oh, this is a clue. My mind has sort of <laughs> picked up the the word feta, you know, feta number one, uh, sakayaditi, self-view. And uh, and this mental image came up. So uh, again, uh, it's extremely rare for me to experience anything like that. But it was very, uh, very helpful in terms of this atavadupadana, the uh, clinging to self, that if the mind is framing the practice in terms of I want to be free. I want to to practice hard so I can be free. I can be. I want to be enlightened. I want to at least be. I want to become a stream enterer. That'll be the best thing I can do. Notice all those eyes and me's and minds, and and when Lumpur Sumato would emphasize how it's not me doing something now to become enlightened. I'm an unenlightened person who needs to do something now to become enlightened in the future. He'd say the uh, the alternative is be awake now, and not me being awake now, but just be be wakefulness now, uh, and that that letting go of time, letting go of self, and uh, not creating that kind of a structure. So it's it's subtle, not easy to to recognize. But the more that those those self creating habits can be um, recognized and known for what they are and let go of, then the more that the, the genuine experience is that of, of freedom. It's not, but it's not me getting free. <laughs> it's freedom from the me. But I, I do acknowledge that it, these is the self-creating habits are, are very, very strong. And uh, maybe one last story to share with you. This was a kind of a, 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 a um, uh, this is definitely don't try this at home. So, um, but this is a very kind, of, a very humbling insight into self-view. So, uh, Chithurst House is like an old Victorian stone building, and it was very broken down uh, when uh, the sangha moved there. No, the repairs hadn't been done for years and years. So, uh, we put a new roof on, and my job was to do the gutters kind of uh, to catch the water off the roof and then feed the water down through pipes to the the ground so i was the the, the guttering expert well i had to learn how to do it so the whole house is wrapped with scaffolding the kind of metal bars all around the house and it's quite it's quite high it's like sort of two stories and the 10 foot ceilings inside so that the um the 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 gutters are at about 30 feet you know 25 30 feet off the ground so I've been doing this work for about a month. It's a, you know, a complicated floor plan of the house. So it took a long time to do all the gutters around the edge. And, uh, and I got pretty casual climbing around in the, in the scaffolding. And I didn't bother with a ladder a lot of the time. I just kind of climb up the bars and go here and go there. And, just, and I had my pouch of equipment. I had the string to get the level and the spirit level to, to, um, to measure the, you know, the, the 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 tilt so that the water would run down to the uh, and flow away and the glue and the, the hacksaw and such like and to to cut the guttering and um so on this particular occasion um i was climbing down through uh, i was climbing down from the level of the gutter to the next uh, layer down and i had my little spirit level in my hand and it was meth is a, a small metal spirit level with a with a little bubble in, and uh, so I thought, well, I could take the spirit level, put that in my pouch, and then take hold of the the bar. But yeah, why bother? Um, so I took hold of this scaffolding bar with the spirit level in my hand, and I let go with my right hand, and I'm just holding on with my left hand. Now there was not a lot of friction metal on metal and my my fingers didn't reach all the way around the bar so metal on metal uh, just holding on with one hand my feet were just in 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 the air and so my whole weight is on my left hand and then um the uh, uh the fact was that uh, as soon as i let go with my right hand then i just dropped so i'm about 25 feet up and uh, I'm falling through the scaffolding, and the, with a there's a flower bed underneath me. 
So there's all kinds of metal bars sticking out, and that, uh, and as I'm falling, uh, the thought in my mind was, I hope no, no one's watching. Yeah, I could have got my head smashed on a scaffolding bar. I could have got impaled by some rebar. Landing on the ground, I could have broken my back and just been completely disabled for the rest of my life. But the thought in my mind, it was vanity. It was, I hope no one is watching because this was, that was a really stupid thing to do. And it was a very distinct thought. Like, that was my first thought is I'm more, more protective of my ego than my physical well-being. So I, I landed in a little box bush in the, fortunately, there was a little box hedge in the garden. I cushioned me. And I did look around that. Okay. I hope no one saw. But it was like, wow, that's incredible. That is really stupid. I mean, not just stupid that I like, let my whole weight uh, sort of um, uh, depend on a hand that wasn't even properly gripping the, the, the bar. That was, that was stupid in the first place. But the fact that I cared more about my ego and not looking bad in public, uh, even as a Buddhist monk, you know, you're supposed to be professionally egoless, that, that just not looking like an idiot was more important than whether I was going to get skewered on a, a spike of metal and or die miserably or be disabled for the rest of my life. So that was um, uh, a, a, um, a humbling insight into self-view that, wow, this is, this is tough stuff. <laughs> these, these habits, even in the face of death, it's like, I hope I look okay. So anyway, that's, uh, I think, enough to share for this evening. So please uh, consider these uh, thoughts. Um.